Before the episode, I want to share a quick word from this episode's sponsors, Live Oak Bank, Hood & Strong, and Oberly Risk Strategies. Our first sponsor, Live Oak Bank, is a seasoned SMB lender providing SBA and conventional financing for search funds, independent sponsors, private equity firms, and individuals looking to acquire lower middle market companies. Live Oak has closed billions of dollars in SBA financing and is actively looking to help more small company investors across the country. If you are in the process of acquiring a company or thinking about starting a search, contact Lisa Forrest or Heather Anderson directly to start a conversation or go to liveoakbank.com think. Our second, Hood & Strong, is a CPA firm with a long history of working with search funds and private equity firms on diligence, assurance, tax services, and more. Hood & Strong is highly skilled in working with search funds, providing quality of earnings and due diligence services during the search, along with assurance and tax services post-acquisition. They offer a unique way to approach acquisition diligence and manage costs effectively. To learn more about how Hood & Strong can help your search, acquisition, and beyond, please email one of their partners, Jerry Joe at jzhou at hoodstrong.com. And our third sponsor, Oberly Risk Strategies, is the leading specialty insurance brokerage catering to search funds and the broader ETA community, providing complimentary due diligence assessments of the target company's commercial insurance and employee benefits programs. Over the past decade, August Felker and his team have engaged with hundreds of searchers to provide due diligence and ultimately place the most competitive insurance program at closing. Given August's experience as a searcher himself, he and his team understand all that goes into buying a business and pride themselves on making the insurance portion of closing seamless and hassle-free. If you are under LOI, please reach out to August to learn more about how Oberly can help with insurance due diligence at oberly-risk.com or reach out to August directly at august.felker at oberly-risk.com. And now for the episode. Hello and welcome everyone. I'm Alex Bridgman and this is Think Like an Owner. This show seeks out conversations with business owners and private investors to learn how to acquire and run small companies with a special focus on search funds, micro-private equity, and small company operations. You can learn more at alexbridgman.com slash podcast and follow me on Twitter at AEBridgman. And if you like the show, please leave a review and tell a friend to help more folks find Think Like an Owner. I'm also the founder of The Operator's Handbook, a quarterly print publication where small company operators share their insights and ideas for building more effective and profitable companies. Articles focus on process improvement, sales, hiring and training, managing culture, and all responsibilities within operating a small company. If you run a small company today and are looking for new ways to grow and improve, subscribe today and join your peers in the endless pursuit of better at theoperatorshandbook.com. My guest on this episode is Robert Graham. Robert worked in management roles at Eaton prior to attending Harvard Business School, after which he worked in investment banking and private equity. Eventually, he decided to search for a business after seeing his HBS classmates do it. And today, Robert is managing partner at Pillar Health Group, a holding company for four healthcare businesses he acquired together as a searcher. He's also a partner at Search Investment Group, which advises searchers on finding and acquiring their dream business. Search Investment Group also invests in self-funded searchers and has launched a new funded search program that functions as a hybrid between self-funded and traditional funded search. We discuss this program, its goals, and feedback they've received from searchers in the episode. During our conversation, we also talk about what managing large manufacturing facilities with hundreds of employees is like, why Robert didn't want to acquire a manufacturing business as part of his search, running two businesses at once with Pillar Health and Search Investment Group, and time management as a CEO. Thanks for joining us, Robert. It's good to have you on the podcast. Would love to hear all about your your journey through through Pillar and Search Investment Group and all the different work you've been a part of. Would love to start just by asking a little bit about how did you get into search? Like what made it appealing and interesting to you? Yeah, that's a great question, Alex. I think that I always knew I wanted to own my own business and I probably wanted to buy a business rather than start one from scratch. I, I didn't really have the the risk tolerance, I think, to to do a startup. Or really I didn't really want to wait, you know, five or ten years to to have a business that, you know, was large. So I always kind of knew I wanted to buy a business. Learned about the search fund model while at HBS and then decided actually not to go down that route immediately, but to learn all about mergers and acquisitions at HBS and then, you know, did an internship in investment banking 
and went into private equity after HBS to learn how to buy and sell businesses. Uh, did that for you know about a year, and while doing that, learned that I had several classmates who did search funds who didn't have any M&A background, and they did it successfully. And so I got kind of jealous and, and decided to do my own search fund, or not search fund, but a self-funded search, actually, and did that and you know, bought a healthcare group of healthcare companies in 2019 that I've been running since. So that's kind of how I got here. Do you think you could have launched a search fund straight after HBS? Yeah, I, I do think so. I've seen folks launch search funds without having an MBA. And um, I think if you've got the, the right background, uh, and the most important being leadership capability and, you know, the ability to manage people and processes, I think you can do a search fund without having much M&A background and without having an MBA and definitely not an MBA from an Ivy League school. So I encourage people without those backgrounds and you don't need to have a background in PE or consulting or investment banking. I think the biggest thing is is management. If you've managed uh, a business, that's that's going to be the most important thing to you being successful. And, and 90% of being successful in a, in a search is is not finding the business. It's It's what you do with the business after you find it. You just have to be good at finding a business for six months. So, yeah, I definitely, I don't think an MBA is necessary. I don't even think, you know, transaction experience is really necessary if you partner with the right advisors and potentially investors. Yeah. So how do you feel like your previous experience prior to Harvard Business School helped prepare you for searching? It definitely prepared me for running the company post-search. It didn't help me really with the search itself. So. I was in operations management type positions and led large groups of people, which has been very helpful to me post-closing, you know, and, and really manage processes and people, like I mentioned. But the search piece is very much transactional in nature. It's, it's quite a bit different. I mean, it is in some ways, there is some project management aspects to it. So I was a project manager and got, you know, like the formal proje- project manager you know, designation went through the training, all that stuff. That was helpful, I guess, in in kind of running my search because it allowed me to do it in a structured way. Other than that, you know, searching for a business to acquire is a lot different from working in an operations role for a large company. So what did a typical day look like for you in being a part of some of these huge manufacturing facilities that you worked in? You know, it all depended on the on the role I was in, but in, in you know in the operations management roles, you know, oftentimes it, it could be um, in the ways that it's similar. I think in in owning your own business are that you really in some of those positions are responsible for whatever happens to the operation that's under you. So, for example, we had situations in plants that you know I was managing where. We would have a safety issue happen at the same time, you know, an employee would get injured. That would happen at the same time the plant paint line was going to go down. And, you know, at the same time, we're trying to get a, a rush order out the door. And it was my responsibility to make sure the factory didn't shut down and also that the employee was taken care of and that the order went out. And so you kind of have to do what you have to do. You have to really think on your feet and move quickly and be decisive. And those are the types of things you have to do as a business owner, right? Sometimes you're in very difficult situations and if you don't fix it, nobody is going to. And, you know, you could be in a really dangerous position if you don't fix it immediately. So you have to be decisive and you have to take action. You have to be action oriented. And so those are all things that I learned in my operations roles. And it was, you know, every day walking into work in a, in a factory, you don't know what's going to happen. You can create a plan as, you know, what you're going to do and what you're going to improve that day. And a lot of times that plan just flies out the window completely. So that, that's kind of the nature of the work. And you've got to be really comfortable with that. How big were some of these factories? The f- biggest factory that I worked in was a million square foot factory. I was not over that factory. There was a you know a very senior plant manager over that factory, but yeah, that was a million square foot factory in upstate New York, and uh, had the factory had been around like 150 years. It was pretty neat. It was a foundry too, so they would actually like melt metal ingot into massive metal parts, and the building was just so cool. I mean, it was some parts of the building 
look like a factory you'd see in a picture of like Henry Ford's original factory, right? It was, it was, it was pretty neat. Most of the factories that I was in were, were smaller than that. So the factory where the situation happened, I just told you about, it's about 300,000 square feet. That's about three times the size of a Home Depot. I always think of factories in terms of how many Home Depots they are. Like, I was so about a, to ask home, you because I, yeah. I can't even visualize what a million what square feet looks like. Like how many Costco's yeah. or Home Depot's <laughs> is that? So an average Home Depot is like 100,000 square feet. Okay. So I always do in my head, I'm thinking multiples of Home Depot's. So that factory where we had the situation I told you about was like the size of three Home Depot's. And I think like 400 people worked in that factory. The factory I told you about in upstate New York, million square foot factory. So that's 10 Home Depot's. And at its peak production, I think there was like 3,000 people working in that facility. So that was, that was a massive one. The biggest factory I've worked in, I actually don't know how many square feet it is, but I worked in a Lockheed Martin factory in Fort Worth, Texas. And that factory is over a mile long. It is massive. It's it's really kind of cool because you go into the factory and they have the, you know, the really like efficient way to get through the factory if you're on the floor uh, on the production floor all the time is you go in a go-kart and they have like they have like lanes set up it's really funny because it, it's like a mini town inside the factory and there's stop signs and intersections and they like enforce you stopping at the stop sign. <laughs> it's kind of crazy, but it, it's like a little town inside the factory and they had like a barbershop and restaurants and all kinds of stuff. So there are massive factories out there depending on what you're manufacturing. And if you're manufacturing jets, you know, your factory is going to be massive. So yeah, yeah no kidding. Have you visited the Boeing factory up in Seattle? I have. Yeah, it's amazing. Have you been there? I have I, a long time ago, probably 10 years ago when I was a kid. But it was one of the most, one of the largest buildings I've ever seen. And there's, this was when the 787 was just coming into production. And you could see lines of 10 787s all lined up, you know, kind of in like this snake chain on their way out the building. And then each one is progressively more built than the one before it. And it's just this unfathomably large building with all these different hallways. And that tour guide took us down these hallways where you couldn't, you couldn't see anything. And then you, you peek through a window and there's a you know, 737 there. And you, know, you keep going and there's all these different engines or parts that are getting pulled in and assembled on planes. It was just such a huge, huge building. That's what's so amazing, I think, about manufacturing like large capital goods like that. It's, it's amazing that you know, we have facilities like that. And if you think about everything that has to come together to get a jet off the runway at that facility, it's it's amazing to wrap your mind around. That's why I kind of got into manufacturing when I was pretty young. I was just amazed by, it seemed like magic, right? That you have a building where parts come in, parts and people and capital come into this building from all over the world and out comes a jet or whatever, a train, you know, a car. It's unbelievable that the amount of coordination that that takes and uh, and how, you know, intricate of a process it is. So, I mean, that just kind of, you know, early on in my career just really caught my interest. And that's that's kind of why I went in that direction, actually. Yeah, it's really amazing. And even within those planes, there's there's entire companies that only make the lights or they make the the wingtips or the radar system and all these all these parts sometimes like the tiniest parts are made from this one tiny you know tiny tiny SMB in Pennsylvania or something and it's flown into Seattle so that they can put it on the 787 there's just really cool businesses surrounding that have you found a few like that through search investment group that you've been a part of or are perhaps downstream of different large manufacturing projects or businesses it's unbelievable how many companies are required to support a company that's already massive. And, you know, I will say to your question about, you know, whether we found any companies like that with Search Investment Group, we tend to stay away from, even though it's my background, we tend to stay away from capital goods manufacturing and also companies that manufacture goods that go into capital goods manufacturing for a variety of reasons. Number one, I mean, if you think about it, if you're making parts that are aerospace parts and they're not consumable parts, well, yeah, generally, if, if they're not consumable aerospace parts, you've probably got 
two or three customers that can buy your product and that's about it. So you're by definition, almost definitely going to have customer concentration. That goes for the automotive space too. And a lot of other large capital goods manufacturing and those, those in markets tend to be somewhat cyclical. So, you know, what we're trying to do generally, we're buying small businesses and they're usually leveraged investments, right? We're oftentimes using the SBA or some other form of debt, but we don't like cyclical customer concentrated businesses because that, that doesn't work well with this model, unfortunately. And that's just kind of the nature of small business leveraged buyouts. We, we like really stable companies that have diversified customer bases. Also, I'll say, we like service businesses because they have a very high, highly variable cost structure, right? So if you think about a manufacturing business versus a service business, service businesses usually have a lot, you know, in terms of a percentage of their cost structure, it's much higher weighted toward variable costs rather than fixed costs. And manufacturing companies, generally speaking, have much higher fixed costs, which is difficult if you have a lot of leverage, because if you have a reduction in revenue, you have a much larger reduction in profitability, right? And that makes it hard to cover your debt payments. Where, you know, if you look at like service businesses, for example, if you have a reduction in revenue, well, most of your costs also are reduced because of the variable cost structure. So we like service businesses, really, that service companies and non-cyclical industries that have, like I said, you know, diversified customer bases. And you're also running your own company on the side of Search Investment Group. Can you talk about that company a little bit and how you how you found it and what kind of what, what business it is and different customers? And I, I think it was three different companies, if I remember right, from our conversation, right? Yes. So we bought the three healthcare providers in 2019. They're in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. And the holding company is called Pillar Health Group. And what we provide is skilled nursing uh, and therapies. So physical therapy, speech therapy, occupational therapy, and then also palliative care and hospice care to patients in their homes. And we provide that across the DFW area and then in 13 surrounding counties. Uh, We recently made an acquisition in Oklahoma. And then in addition to that, we've got an acquisition that's in process right now in Arizona. So hopefully we'll be in three states pretty soon. We're, we're, we're growing through acquisition and also organically. So when we bought the business originally, there was only one physical location in Garland, Texas. And we, you know, about a year ago added a Fort Worth branch, which has grown great. The team over there has done a great job. And, and right now we're trying to add more branches, uh, in the DFW area. So it's, it's both an inorganic and organic growth strategy. It's been a lot of fun. Really enjoy doing it. That's most of my time. I do search investment group in the extra time that I have, right? But most of my time is focused on on that, building that business, which we're really excited about. I think it's it's got competitive advantages that few other others in the industry have. We're able to provide a level of care that very few competitors are are able to provide. And there's a ton of, I guess, what you you'd call, you know, just self-fulfilling kind of feelings from doing that type of work, right? We're helping people that are the most vulnerable in our society, especially during the difficult time of the pandemic, helping them receive the care they need in their homes has been a really meaningful thing to be a part of. So yeah, really enjoy doing it. and It's been a great experience. Which of the three seems to be growing the fastest or having the most interesting growth evolution since you've acquired it? Definitely, I'd say the hospice division, although the home health division has grown very fast as well. So I'll tell you just kind of numbers. When we bought the company, we had a home care census. This is back in 19, the original three. The home care census was 300. Well, it was actually about 280. The home health census was 75 and the hospice census was five. And today, the home care census, which was 280, is now 320. The home health census, which was 75, is now 250. And the hospice census was five, and today it's 50. So on a percentage basis, the hospice has grown the fastest. It's also probably, I think, the area of most interest for us. I think it's the the place where we can do the most good also. A large percentage of folks in the United States pass away without receiving hospice services at all. 
And then when they do receive them, a very large portion are only on hospice services for a couple of days, which is really pretty tragic because hospice services generally are available to folks for six months or even longer. And there's just a lack of education in the industry. And because of that, the U.S. population is underserved right now with hospice services, I would say. There's a lot of folks who are passing who aren't receiving the services that are actually available to them. So I, I think it's it's an area with with huge opportunity for the right providers to to help folks who, who may not even realize that the resources are out there. Yeah, certainly. How similar are those three businesses? Is there a lot of context switching that you have to go through throughout the day? Or is there a similar theme to all of them that allows it allows you to focus you know, on all of them fairly easily? Yeah, that's a great question. There are a lot of differences between the three, but they are complementary services, right? So oftentimes we get patients, home care is unskilled, you know, assistance of daily living in the home. So cooking, cleaning, medication management, you know, unskilled attendant type care in the home. That's, you know, one portion of our business. Generally, that's for folks who, you know, would meet the definition of a geriatric patient, right? So a senior. And then home health is skilled nursing and therapy in the home, also mostly focused on geriatric in in Dallas-Fort Worth anyway. We do intellectual and developmental disabilities in other markets. So I'm I'm just talking about Dallas-Fort Worth right now. And then the third division is, you know, hospice and palliative care, which is end-of-life type care. And a lot of patients need more than one of those services during their time with us. And it's, it's a great business model because rather than them having to go find another provider, we're right there and we already have a pretty good idea of if someone is going to have trouble and is going to need additional care rather than having them go to the hospital or go without that care, we can be there to, to help them so that those things don't happen. When, when folks, you know, really run into trouble, geriatric patients in particular, is, you know, they have something go wrong and they don't get the care they need. And then, you know, it gets worse and then they end up in the hospital or they end up with, you know, some type of, a, you know, a worsening of their condition, which can, you know, wasn't necessary. And that's kind of where we try to step in. Now, the three businesses are, are managed by the same management team, which has done a fantastic job. Even though they are, they do have some differences. We manage them in many ways as a family, although they are technically, you know, separate providers. It sounds like you've found an effective way to delegate your own role. The fact that you're able to run Search Investment Group and even be on this podcast in the middle of the day. What does your day to day task list or set of responsibilities look like? And how have you, perhaps you've delegated more of it over time? But I'd just love to hear more about what does a day to day look like for managing those three businesses and a search investment group? So after doing some reading, I found out that a lot of folks who are really successful at managing their time, they block out a time on their calendar every week to read or do non-operational type work, right? So I block out a block on Fridays where I'm not in meetings, you know, for for the healthcare roll-up, where I can actually do long-term thinking you know, strategic planning, read, do things like this. And so that's that's kind of what I've done. I've set my my schedule up like that. So my Fridays look a lot different than my Mondays through Thursdays. So Monday through Thursday, starting at 8 a.m. until, you know, about 5 p.m., it's it's really meetings. And I, I live in Houston. The most of the healthcare business none of the healthcare businesses are in Houston. And so where we do we do virtual meetings pretty often. And, and then I go up to Dallas Fort Worth pretty often too, you know, call it every once every two weeks just to visit in person. But, you know, the, the management team does a great job and, and what we do is, you know, we have meetings with all the different departments during, you know, Monday through Thursday and we're going through we have a, a billing meeting, we've got a, a compliance meeting that we do, we have uh, specific department meetings, we've got a, a marketing meeting that we have management team meeting that we have every week, right? And, and you know, folks come prepared to those meetings and we talk about roadblocks that are being seen and, and, and different key issues that we need to discuss, you know, with the full team and with management. After that, usually call it five or six at night during the week, I get to have a lot of fun with Search Investment Group. So, 
and that's where we advise searchers um, or acquisition entrepreneurs on how to buy and and then close on you know find and and then and then acquire a company for themselves. So we have a ton of fun doing that, and have two partners in that venture as well. So I'd say my day job is running a healthcare company, or really helping run a healthcare company because we've got a fantastic leadership team. And then my my night gig is a search investment group. My my night and weekend gig. <laughs> So it's a lot of fun. I really enjoy it. And it gives me some variety. You know, I always really valued variety in my jobs in the past because a lot of jobs don't provide variety. I'm the type of person I think a lot of people are like this too. You just have to have some variety so you don't get burned out. And this setup has worked really well for me. Yeah, no kidding. How In 2022, what kinds of adjustments are you looking to make in your role? Are you looking to you know, reduce number of meetings or make time for more reading throughout the week? Are you going to do any Bill Gates think week where you go off to a remote location for a week and just read books? Like, What's what's your 2022 kind of CEO in a day plan? I, I think actually probably more strategic long-term thinking. You know, when we started this running these businesses was like the factory situation I told you about, Alex, where it was a fire, you know, a fire to be fought every day. We didn't have a strong leadership team in place. And now we have that. And we're doing much better. We've grown, right? So there's not as much, you know, worry about, you know, things like meeting, you know, debt payments and things like that. We're just in a in a much more stable place as a company. We're we're much larger. And because of that, and because I have a team that now supports me, I can focus rather than working in the business, as it's the common saying is rather than working in the business, working on the business. And so that requires quiet time and strategic long-term thinking. It requires working on acquisitions and, and strategy rather than fighting fires and day-to-day operational things that our fantastic leadership team is doing a great job of, of handling. And that's going to allow us to grow significantly the ability to focus on working on the business. I think a lot of small business owners can't even grow their business because their day is full of serving the direct customer and, and fixing the direct operational issue. And so they can't even step out, I think, a lot of times and, and think about the bigger picture. And so that's what we've kind of tried to solve for. And so I, I anticipate spending much more time this year on strategic thinking, strategic planning, acquisition, and, you know, and, and continuing to grow organization. So that, that I think that's, that's kind of the biggest change. Yeah. Yeah. One helpful thing I've found for figuring out what I can delegate is making a list of tasks that I do throughout a week. And then figure out which ones am I absolutely necessary for and which ones could I probably get out of and then which ones can I definitely get out of. It's been fun to kind of piece together what roles or what what pieces of the podcast and the handbook can be sent off to other folks. But do you do any similar exercise or some other exercise that kind of clues you into what parts of your day or parts of your role over time need to be systematized or handed off to somebody else? Yeah, I, I absolutely do do that. You know, and I always kind of, you know, have a philosophy about thinking about the value of my time, right? And every hour of my time is an investment. And I want to invest those hours of time in high returning investments. So if I, if I'm going to have a bigger impact spending my time on item A than item B, I'm going to try as, as hard as possible to spend my time on item A rather than B. And that goes into like all parts of my professional and personal life. So for example, you know, we have someone to help clean our house, just a small example. And the reason for that is instead of spending three hours every weekend, you know, cleaning the house, I can spend those three hours on the weekend working on strategy, our business and and growing because that's a more efficient use of my time than cleaning. I'm in the very lucky place to be able to do that. But that makes a lot of sense, right? And, and many other chores as well, right? You know, I could do home repairs and things like that, which a lot of people enjoy doing. But I've specifically structured my personal life around doing as few activities. I obviously, you know, take time off, but as few activities that are non-value added to, you know, the business side as possible. And, you know, whether that's picking up groceries, cleaning around the house, anything like that. I've tried to outsource as much of that as as possible. Have you had groceries delivered before? Oh, absolutely, yeah. Mixed results on that. <laughs> uh, I don't, same for you. 
No, we haven't. We I've never tried it. I I'm fascinated by it because I my one of my dreams is to not have to own a car, even though that'll probably never happen. But one of that one of those key pieces or key errands that you need to remove if you don't need to if you don't want a car is groceries, either you know somewhere where you can walk to or somehow get them delivered. So. I'm curious about, although I've never tried it, perhaps it's an experiment for me this year. So what we do mostly is we we do pick up from the grocery store, right? So they'll like bring it, they'll, you can order ahead of time and then go pick it up in your car, which does save you like 20, 30 minutes of walking around the store shopping, which is over time. That's a lot of time. We also have had groceries delivered. The issue we have had is they don't always arrive in the best quality. And I, I think, you know, the incentive may be not there to find the, product with the longest away expiration date or you know the fruit that's the least bruised so you know mixed results on on that experiment but we do we do some of that and you know definitely try to try to minimize that yeah you almost need to get extra fruit just to you know make an allowance for some spoilage perhaps definitely so talk about the search investment group it's not a if I remember right, it's not a fund. It's it's something a little bit different, right? Yeah, I would probably categorize us as, in some ways, partners for acquisition entrepreneurs. So for folks, and, it, and you don't have to be a search fund, right? Um, you can just be a, you know, a, a mid-career executive or somebody who wants to buy their own business. We help advise them all the way from finding that business to closing on it and running it. And it's you know, in many ways, like a partnership type relationship, because we don't, we're not like other advisors where we're, you know, charging like an upfront fee or anything like that. We do get compensated for our work, but only if, if the entrepreneur acquires a company. And then we're pretty aligned, you know, because uh, we do get compensated in some equity. So uh, there's a really good alignment of incentives there. We're trying to get the searcher or the acquisition entrepreneur a company, it's very much in our interest to have them acquire. And then it's also very much in our interest to have them acquire a good business that's going to provide good returns because that's our incentive. And so we work really pretty hand in hand with you know those entrepreneurs to, to get those deals closed and, and help them hopefully achieve their dream of owning their own business. Yeah. And a month or two ago, you announced this new initiative you're going to do with a search investment group where it's kind of a funded program for self-funded searchers. Where you can give a, you know, there was a two thousand dollar monthly stipend. You pay for quality of earnings, deal fees, and you get, you know, support from from SIG. Can you talk about that program a little bit? Why did you create it? What's been reception so far from investors or searchers? How's that gone so far? Can you tell tell us a little bit about that? So we found that, and kind of looked at some surveys online, like for example through SearchFunder.com, uh, and found that a large portion of people were not taking the plunge, quitting their jobs and going and finding a business to buy because they were worried about covering day-to-day expenses. And so $2,000 a month is kind of an arbitrary number. And we just figured that, you know, can probably cover most of someone's mortgage or rent payment. And so that's kind of the number we came up with. And and what we do is if a searcher comes on board with us, we cover $2,000 a month of, you know, their, their monthly expenses to try to help them until they are able to acquire a company. In addition to that, you know, we work with the same M&A attorneys and the same QV or, you know, forensic accounting firm on every deal we do, and so we just cover those costs for the for the person who's trying to acquire a business, which I think is a huge help. Where I think entrepreneurs run into a lot of trouble is they decide to go buy their own business and they they think that, you know, the company that they found they maybe sign an LOI, right? Uh, an intent to purchase. They think for sure it's going to close and they spend a bunch of money on due diligence costs and they waste six months on a company that ends up they couldn't even buy. I mean, it happens all the time. I'd say less than 20% of businesses that get under LOI or contract actually close in the lower middle market. That's been our experience. So what do we do, right? We try to reduce that risk. So number one, instead of having $200,000 of due diligence costs and then you know having the deal collapse uh, and being stuck with $200,000 of bills, we just cover that expense for the searcher. So we're going we're gonna to just pay for your accounting and legal expenses. And we know how to do it in a smart way because we've done this so many times. 
when we need to look for certain things and how to really efficiently use those third-party advisors. And I think a lot of entrepreneurs don't know how to efficiently use those advisors because they probably never bought a company before. They're probably an excellent leader and are going to do great with the company after they acquire it, but they've never bought a company before, so they don't know what to look for. They don't know how to efficiently flex those services, which are very expensive. So we we help cover that and reduce the, the risk to an entrepreneur that they're going to end up with a bunch of debt and not being able to cover their mortgage or whatever during their during their search for a business, try to reduce that risk uh, so they can focus on finding the right business to acquire and achieving their dream. So is there a similar step-up basis in any expenditure you make with the searcher in their eventual company? Yeah, we we do get compensated a little bit more for that. And, and we think that it's more than that compensation that we get is is minimal in comparison, I think, to the value we bring. So... We're not like the traditional search investors or the accelerators in that we're taking a giant chunk of your company away. If you go that route, you're probably going to only end up with the, the average traditional searcher or from the Stanford study is only ending up with like 20% ownership in their company. Our average searcher that we work with is ending up with between 70 and 80% ownership in their company. So we're not, what's the word? We're not as nearly as, as costly is going down that route. We're also a lot cheaper than having a partner. So, you know, we kind of view ourselves almost as we're in some ways similar to taking on a partner for an entrepreneur to take on a partner to search for a business with. But the problem with taking on a partner is it's extremely expensive, right? It costs you 50% of your equity usually. And while it's probably a, a wise thing to do, we're, we believe we can in many ways fulfill a lot of the benefits that a partnership brings without having to give up 50% of your upside. Yeah, it's definitely a good trade-off. What's been reception from searchers so far from this program? Uh, very positive. So when we launched the program, and even before then, our thesis for this space was that folks wanted to own their own businesses, but didn't know how to buy a business necessarily, didn't feel comfortable leaving their jobs to do it. There were some barriers there. And we believe that there was a, a place for an advisor to do what we do. And it's proven to be... I. We believe very true. I think our thesis has been proven out because of the inbound interest. At this point, we we do have pretty high standards of, of who we decide to work with. We, we have to have a multi-stage interview process. And also, we, we do even a, like a, a work personality test, right? It's like a personality test around your, your work habits. And we check references, everything like that. So it is, it's not a, hey, I want to work with Search Investment Group. Okay, we'll work together. It is a pretty... What, what should I say? Selective process. And unfortunately, it just has to be, it, you know, search isn't for everyone. And we want to partner with the people who are most likely to be successful, obviously. Right. On the personality test side, I'm kind of curious about that. What tests have you found to be most effective in accurately assessing something? So we use, we use several different methods. And what, what we found to, there's not like one test in particular we've used. We, we use a few, but they're all based on work habits, right? So we like people who are really the, the fit of what an entrepreneur is, right? Someone who's comfortable with a lot of autonomy and wants autonomy. Somebody who's comfortable with not having black and white answers to everything. Someone who's okay with ambiguity. And then folks who, we, we do like folks who have high attention to detail because it, it is important in this, type, in this type of work. And, and folks who are conscientious, right? We're investing in these people and so are other people. And I think we all want to probably partner with other partners who are conscientious, right? We don't want folks who are really just in everything for themselves and, and kind of not concerned with the, the ethical and, and moral and group concerns. So we look for a few different things that are, are important to us. And it's been really, I think, effective in that we've done some of these professional personality tests. And it's not like personality. It's when I say personality test, it's not like really how it's not like a personal personality test. It's like a work habit personality test. Does that make sense? Like how you are in the workplace and how you function as a professional rather than how you function in your daily life. And we found it to be very effective because we've started working with people, obviously, after they f filled the test with different different results on the tests. I mean, we don't have, you know, to have somebody fit in a perfect silo. And we've noticed just uh, anecdotally after they've taken the test and they started working with us that 
they, they seem to fit the profile that was created through the test, which is pretty interesting. And it, it does help us work better with them. We know where their strengths are and where their weaknesses are. So as their partner, we can adjust really how we spend time with them and how we guide them. So it's a really effective way to help us work together better also. And do you share your personal personality test results with them as well so that they know how you, you all react or you all behave and how your personalities work? In you know, workplace? we have not done that, but it's a great idea, Alex. And we should absolutely do that because it would, it would help with both sides. Yeah. I, I will say this. I think that the, the three partners within Search Investment Group have very similar personalities. If you took our work personality tests and put them up next to each other, there's almost like complete overlap. There might be a problem with that. Not sure. <laughs> but <laughs> that is that is currently how it is. And so we're, we're very much like the, the, the typical personality test pattern you'd see for an entrepreneur. And so I think that the searchers that we work with kind of already know how we interact and, and, and things like that. But showing our personality tests is, is a great idea. We could probably just share one because they're they're so similar, but <laughs> we should probably think about that. Now that I'm now that I'm saying that, <laughs> need some need some variety there, probably. <laughs> yeah, let me know if you try it. I'd be curious what kind of results you get or or what feedback is. Moving into closing questions here, what college class would you teach if it could be about any subject you wanted? Yeah, that's a great question. I'd probably say economics. I I really I I really enjoy reading about and learning about economics. And I feel like economics is a nice intersection between kind of an art and a science. It's pretty much as big picture as you can get. I like big picture and um, just love the subject of economics. I have a passion for it. So I'd probably have to pick economics. Excellent. What's a strongly held belief you change your mind on? I would have to go down an area that we talked about before, and that's manufacturing. So my whole background before doing a search was manufacturing, right? We talked about it, right? I was in in a bunch of different plants. I loved manufacturing. I worked for a manufacturing-focused private equity firm. I worked in the industrial group at an investment bank. It was as industrial as you could get. And then when I did my search, I started out my search just looking at for manufacturing companies. And I felt like my background suited to that. That's where my network was. And as I got more and more into it, what I realized is it's not as important to have a background specifically in the industry that you acquire a business in. It's more important that you have general leadership and management skills. It, most, most entrepreneurs or searchers who acquire a business acquire a business outside of the industry they're in, at least the ones that we work with and the ones that we see and interact with, that, that tends to be the case. And it really isn't a hindrance. I think just having the, the basic operational and leadership skills are what's important. So I transitioned my search away from being a manufacturing search and went into healthcare. And it was an excellent decision. Healthcare is, for the most part, an industry that's more suited to the, the search fund type micro leverage buyout. And most service industries are. So I, I totally changed my perspective on that. And every searcher I talk to who is wants to go buy a, a big manufacturing company or something that makes widgets, I, I kind of I get where they're coming from because that was my background too. I was so interested in it. But it, it's really not a great fit, honestly, for, for micro leverage buyouts. Have you found that there's, just in your deal experience, that there's very little or maybe even just... A, Maybe there, is there none or like a little bit of correlation between a searcher's experience in an industry to the results that they achieve in that industry? Yeah, that's a great question. I don't have enough data points to tell you that that's true with any... I'm a statistics guy because uh, <laughs> that, that's kind of what my background was, like operations research almost. And I just don't have enough data points to, to tell you that. Now, what I will tell you was really interesting. I went to the Stanford... CEO uh, search fund CEO conference uh, in December, just a you know a couple months ago, and one really interesting takeaway from that was that there is a, a correlation between the historical performance of the business and and the performance of uh, the investment. So, higher growing businesses tend to continue to be higher growing businesses, and more profitable businesses tend to continue to be more profitable businesses. 
what was a really interesting takeaway from the from the conference for me from the statistics that were discussed and presented by professors was that actually there's probably a higher correlation to returns. It's it's probably more highly correlated to the industry that a company's in and how the company has performed in the past than it is to the searcher that goes into the business, which is really interesting. And there's a really famous Warren Buffett quote about how when the reputation of a manager is put up against the reputation of a difficult industry, almost always it's the difficult reputation of the industry that survives rather than the the reputation of the manager. And I think that's really true in many cases, right? I mean, you could put the best manager in the world in, in a company that made horse carriages 200 years ago, and it just doesn't matter. You could be Elon Musk manufacturing horse carriages, and you're still not going to be successful. It's It got replaced. It's just, yeah, leadership, I think, um, is fantastic and in a, in a core core requirement for this, but it, it cannot always overcome long-term trends in an industry and, and also the business fundamentals. Yeah, certainly. Speaking of Warren Buffett, I'm, I'm in Omaha, Nebraska, and the annual meeting this year is April 30th. Have you been to the meeting before? I have not. Have you? I've not. No, I, I'm going to make sure I keep my share so that I can go this year. But this would be my first time going and his office is three blocks from our apartment so it's pretty easy pretty easy to get to although i think is i think the meeting is at the there's a larger auditorium type location more downtown that we'd have to go to but i'd love to host some sort of smb get together for folks from the search world or operating small companies who are coming to omaha for that event i'd love to have some sort of happy hour at a local bar or a cocktail bar or something like that that could be really fun that sounds awesome. Yeah, I'd love to love to do that. And uh, I'd love to catch up with you after you go for the first time because I'd love to hear about your experience. I've always wanted to do that. That's pretty neat. Yeah, it could be really neat. I know there's folks who line up at like 4 a.m. or something outside the outside the auditorium just waiting to run in and get a good seat. I might be, I might have to put myself in that line just to experience it. It's like a new iPhone launch or something, huh? <laughs> exactly. Yes. Yeah. That's Except funny. there's peanut brittle and pet. <laughs> Coca-Cola and candies. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly. Funny. What's the best business you've ever seen? Let me answer this question within the within the blinders of focusing on what we do, right? So lower, because I, I think the best business. I mean, there's so many, and you know, any business that occupies kind of a monopolistic type space, like an Amazon, that's probably the answer. But yeah, I think I could give you a more interesting answer by answering within the the silo of what a lower middle market leverage buyout, what's the best business? So initially, I thought the best business was a business like ours, right? Healthcare. And the reason why I really like healthcare and the type of healthcare we do is it's non-discretionary. So it really doesn't matter what's happening in the economy. People still have the need for that service. So I, I love non-discretionary businesses. The one thing that isn't great about healthcare is there's no uh, market price mechanism, which a lot of people don't know if they're not in the healthcare space, right? So in a normal business, a a large portion of the benefit of like having a competitive advantage or providing, providing higher quality service or higher quality products is you can charge higher prices. In a very large portion of the healthcare industry, you can't do that, right? Prices are set by large large uh, insurers or by the government. So that does kind of, I think, hamper the way that that businesses can operate in the space. Other than that, I, I, I love healthcare because it's, you know, mostly non-discretionary and pretty recurring in nature, usually not all of it. So I, I'd say the best business I've seen in this space is we've looked at some companies that do maintenance of uh, large industrial equipment, like refrigeration units and things like that. And I love that type of business. So a business where you are repairing critical equipment, love that type of business and, and one that requires you know regular maintenance. So think about, for example, like uh, boiler uh, maintenance and repair, large refrigeration equipment maintenance and repair, those are the types of businesses that we've seen and think are, are pretty awesome business models. Just love that recurring critical nature where you do have a pricing mechanism. And for example, 
they're, they're, they tend to be pretty high margin services because they're critical in nature and they're not going away. They're, they're non-discretionary. So, and, and oftentimes business to business in nature. So I like that better too. So I'd say that'd be my answer. Yeah. Back to your days where you're running factories, what types of recurring services did you have to manage with vendors that you may be looking back on it now or like, wow, that was actually probably a really amazing business. If this guy who repairs my crane or my elevator or something like that probably had an amazing business now that I think of it. There were a lot of things like that, right? Where you have a key piece of process equipment in, in, in a plant where if that piece of equipment goes down, it can shut the plant down. Industrial elevator repair and maintenance is potentially a pretty interesting place to be. I actually almost bought one of those uh, when I was doing my search. But the problem was it was used for coal facilities. And I couldn't get, you know, I couldn't get comfortable with that because I didn't know the direction that, you know, coal was going in. Well, I had a pretty good idea it was not going in a good direction. So I almost bought one like that. And there's a lot of other examples like that. Companies that repair any kind of big capital equipment, just make sure they're repairing it and maintaining it and not manufacturing it. Because companies will continue to operate those pieces of equipment even in a recession right? Or when things go kind of bad in the economy, but they won't buy new pieces of capital equipment that cost $3 million, most likely, right? So, you know, that's, that's kind of how I think about it. I'd rather be the, the company repairing a piece of equipment that always has to be used rather than the company that manufactures the piece of equipment. Yeah, certainly. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. This has been really, really fun to, to chat with you about manufacturing and search and a little bit of aerospace nerding out. So this has been really fun for me. Thanks for coming on and sharing a little bit. Thanks so much, Alex. I really enjoyed it. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you enjoyed the show, please consider leaving us a review and telling a friend to help more folks find Think Like an Owner. I also want to thank our show's sponsors, Live Oak Bank, Hood & Strong, and Oberly for their support. For full episode transcripts and more information, please visit our website at alexbridgman.com slash podcast. And if you want to learn more about the Operator's Handbook, please visit us at theoperatorshandbook.com and join your peers in the endless pursuit of better.